Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, speaking to you from the sparkling studios of AM 950 in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, but we just call it Minnesota, Minneapolis, just because it sounds, you know, you know where Minneapolis is. Hello, how are you? Here I am. Um, giving you a fresh episode, fresh um, issue of LA 2.0. Uh, yes, we will talk a little bit about the virus, but you know what? I am trying to give you as much normalcy as possible. And spring is here in Minnesota. Thrilled to report, I'm seeing a lot of green fuzz on trees, and I'm seeing little plants coming up of the ground. I'm not seeing any flowers yet, but I'm seeing like green things. I cannot tell you how that has buoyed my spirits as well as I've been able to get on my bicycle. Working off a few pounds, uh, pandemic pounds, let me just tell you. So we've got a great show here. The big interview is with Mickey Morissette, who is the owner and publisher of Minnesota Women's Press, the, the longest running publication supporting feminism uh, and women in the country. In my C block, I'm going to talk about um, uh, pivoting to my first online training. Um, and uh, it happened, and actually, I live to tell you about it. <laughs> but let me start with our featured idealist, Eloise Cobell. She is a Native American American. She she was an, a Native American American Indian woman who took on the federal government and won. Let me start by giving you some background. This is very simplistic, by the way, because um, I don't I don't have the ability to give you Venn diagrams or citations. So just bear with me. I'm glossing. Many Native American American Indians have reservations, as we know, or you know, or um, uh, they go by a variety where their land is goes by a variety of different names. Um, particularly in the West, these lands are the locations of minerals and oil and gas deposits. Some of the lands, some of the Native American, American uh, um, identified lands are very valuable. By the way, almost all land is identified as Native American, American, uh, American Indian land. The Dakota owned the land where, or, where it was Dakota land where, Minis- where Minneapolis is and much of Minnesota is. Sorry, I digress. For more than a century, the federal government administered Native American land and didn't pay royalties that it received for the leases of mines or drilling on those lands, okay? So the minerals or oil or gas are taken off the lands that were Native American lands. Uh, The federal government uh, took in money but didn't pay royalty to um, the bands or the tribes. On top of that, we have to go back to the Dawes Act of 1880s of the 1880s, where in order to, quote-unquote, domesticate Native Americans, uh, many um, individual Native Americans, American Indians, were given 40 to 160 acres of land uh, with the idea that they would become subsistence farmers. Given that many Native lands are in arid parts of the country, that didn't happen. So this whole idea of assimilation was born out of racism and arrogance, okay? It was the idea to make, quote, them like, quote, us. The practical effect of granting land parcels was that the land became fractionalized, all right? So by that I mean Native American folks, American Indians, historically do not use wills. And upon death, as always, land passes to 
living heirs. And if you don't account for that, if you don't account for how the land passes, as more, more and more people gain a share of the land over time because you, people die and then they have heirs. And so you may have 100 people who own a share of 50 acres. Um, that's called fractionalization. Um, and that land can't be sold. People can't get loans when you have so many different owners of the land. Enter our idealist, Eloise Cobell. She was born in, um, on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana in 1945. She was in the middle of nine children. She grew up on a ranch that lacked running water or electricity. She attended a one-room schoolhouse until high school. After that, she went to the Great Falls Business College, the Great Falls, Montana, and then attended Montana State University. But she didn't graduate because she had to leave school in order to go back and care for her mother who was dying of cancer. Eventually, Eloise married another member of the Blackfeet tribe. She became, Eloise became the treasurer of the Blackfeet Nation, which led to her eventually founding the Blackfeet National Bank. I mean, so we have a doer here in Eloise Cobell. It was the first national bank located on an Indian reservation and owned by an American Indian tribe. In 1997, Eloise Cobell was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant. Now, you may recall, okay, I spoke about MacArthur um, several uh, couple of months ago in a different show. Um, and, she, and Eloise was awarded a grant because of her efforts with the bank and her efforts to increase financial literacy among Native American folks. Um, uh, in the course of her work with the bank, Eloise discovered that the federal government wasn't paying to the Blackfeet or other nations or bands the money that was owed for these royalties that I spoke about earlier, the minerals and the gas and oil um, royalties. In fact, the federal government had no reliable system of accounting for fees or royalties that were owned owed to Native American tribes. For nearly 10 years, Eloise sought to informally change the system, informally to get the federal government to do what it was supposed to do. But that didn't work. And so in 1996, at Eloise's urging, a class action lawsuit was filed with Eloise being the named plaintiff in that case. Um, it was Cobell versus uh, one of the people in the government, um, uh, in the Department of Interior. Uh, she sued the Department of Interior. There were 500 class members, and it was the largest class action ever filed against the federal government. That lawsuit lasted 13 years. Now, you know, among other things, I am a lawyer. I mean, I'm a trial lawyer, more than 100 <clears throat> trials under my belt in another iteration of my life. And I have dealt with lawsuits that have lasted years. I think my law, law, longest lawsuit was five or six years. My God, the toll that that lawsuit took on me just simply as a lawyer, let alone the clients. To go 13 years with a lawsuit is nearly unbelievable. The amount of grit and tenacity needed to do that is nearly unimaginable. woman, uh, Eloise Cobell, uh, she did it. She did not flinch. For 13 years, she pressed on with this lawsuit. Uh, Eloise Cobell, in other words, is a superhero. Side note, the first judge assigned to the case in Washington, D.C., this is an Eloise's lawsuit against the Interior, Interior Department, was, the first judge that got the case was named Royce Lambert. He was a Reagan appointee. 
And with that, I bet you thought that you think you know where I'm going on this. But no, it turns out that Judge Lambert was also an idealist <laughs> who spoke the truth to the government, spoke truth to power. Um, he, um, in fact, called the Department of Interior, quote, a dinosaur, the morally and culturally oblivious hand-me-down of a disgracefully racist and imperialistic government that should have been buried a century ago, the last pathetic outpost of the indifference and Anglo-centrism we thought we had left behind, unquote. That's what he called the Department of Interior. Judge Lambert, a Reagan appointee, another idealist. And guess what? That so upset the government that it took the extraordinary step of asking that Judge Lambert be removed from the case. It is, I mean, sometimes judges are removed, but usually by the defense, not by the plaintiffs. Excuse me, usually by individuals, not by the government. And the government wanted to get rid of the judge, wanted a different judge because they were, believed he was favored. He favored or was biased um, in favor of Native Americans, American Indians. Go figure that. That's kind of weird because that's a switch from how the government has dealt with Native Americans and American Indians. Eventually, in 2010, under the Obama administration, the government approved a $3.4 billion settlement uh, for the accounting and trust monies aspect of the case. On top of that, the government paid close to a billion dollars to buy back the equivalent of 1.7 million acres of fractionalized land, meaning that the heirs were paid money for their shares of the land and and then the land was turned over to the respective sovereign nations. That was good. Finally, the settlement created a $60 million scholarship fund for Native Americans and Alaskan Natives. They named this fund the Cobell Education Scholarship Fund after Eloise. Now, not even two years after the settlement in October of 2011, at age 65, a very young age, Eloise Cobell passed away from cancer. At least she outlived the lawsuit. At least she knew that her hard work as an idealist had made a difference. At least she could know that there was going to be a scholar, a huge scholarship fund named after her. I mean, my goodness. What a wonderful, incredible legacy from an idealist who accomplished so much in her life. That is what idealists sometimes do. They change the system. They rock it. And they have the persistence to do that. Eloise Cobell, please know that name, okay? It's not a name I knew before I started to do this show. So there you go. All right. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Uh, follow me on Instagram. It's at, at Ellie J. Krug on Instagram. When we come back, we're going to do the interview with Mickey Morissette. You'll You'll certainly want to pay attention. Thanks. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Hi, Alex of Better Futures Minnesota. Does your business or organization need janitorial services, lawn care, or snow services? Obtain a free, no-obligation estimate from Better Futures Minnesota when you mention that you heard about us on AM950. 
Our supervised, hardworking, and affordable crews will handle your interior and exterior building and property maintenance needs while you help men in your community transform their lives and walk on a positive path to success. It's a win-win. To learn more, go to betterfuturesminnesota.com under business services. We're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950 with me, Ellie Krug. So, um, Eloise Cobell, please read up on her rock star, somebody taking on the government. I mean, can't ask for a better idealist than that. But I can because I have another idealist with me on, on the line right now for the big interview. I am thrilled to welcome Mickey Morissette from Minnesota Women's Press. Uh, she is the publisher, the owner of the pre- of the magazine. Mickey, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. Thank you, Ellie. I'm glad to be on with you. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you here. But we need to say right at the beginning, just so everyone knows, you and I actually have a relationship, not romantic, of course, but we. I am a contributor to Minnesota Women's Press. I've done that several times. So just so everybody knows that, you know, um, although, uh, you know, I want to have you on this show, not because of that. I want to have you on the show because of the magazine and the work that you're doing. So let me just give everybody quickly a background. Uh, Mickey Morissette uh, has decades of communications experience, um, including as an editor at the New York Times, New Media and Time Inc. Um, and, and you are the author of a book, Choosing Single Motherhood, The Thinking Woman's Guide. And as a result of your book, you know, popular uh, cult, uh, cult culture came up with the phrase choice moms. It's a phrase that you in- interjected into our, into our culture. Um, you uh, became the single mom of two children, Sophia, who's now nearly 21, and Dylan, who's 16, who I assume is home with you trying to figure out about how to get along with mom so well. Um, you become you became the publisher and the editor of Minnesota Women's Press in December of 2017. And this is partly really what we want to make sure everyone listening now understands, that Minnesota Women's Press has shared the voice and vision of women since 1985, making it the longest continuously produced feminist monthly publication in the country. I just love that, and I love being a part of that. Mickey... <laughs> Welcome, Mickey. So, thank you, thank you. All right, so you have this very, very rich history, which included in part living in New York City, right? Yes, yep, 18 years I was there. Okay, and then you, you come back to Minnesota and you do a number of things, but why in the world did you, <laughs> did you buy Minnesota Women's Press in late 2017? <laughs> I had friends ask me that. I was in my 50s. They thought I should be preparing for retirement. But uh, as you know, I mean, the yeah, there's been the founders started it in 1985, ran it for many years. Then the subsequent owners ran it for more than 20 years. And I had been working for them as a freelance writer almost since the day I returned from New York City. And not only... Did I want to still be involved with women's press for all of those years? Because 
pay is not great, but it the the, the women I was connected with in the storytelling were fantastic. So I was very proud of it, as you've expressed as well. It's a, it's it's got a, a fabulous mission of sharing the voice and vision of women, which tends to be overlooked still. Um, the other reason I really wanted to step in is because. 2017, when the owners were stepping away, was certainly not the time to let a feminist publication die. Right. So I stepped in, even though I love the flexibility of being a freelance writer as I had been, I stepped in to buy a business, which was not my cup of tea. Um, I'm a content person, but it's been, it's been wonderful and I have a great team. Well, and you, you surrounded yourself with, uh, some very good people as advisors and you've got a kid, I know you have a kitchen cabinet and, um, (laughs) you know, and, and so tell us, um, how did, I mean, the magazine has changed, uh, literally, uh, quite dramatically since you, you came and, and took the helm. Tell us about your vision for the magazine and we will talk challenges that you now have that no one could have expected. So, but mm-hmm. what were your visions and where were you headed before uh, show of 2020? <laughs> yeah. Well, as a longtime journalist and storyteller and as somebody who, after I wrote my book, Choosing Single Motherhood, I developed a website for it, which I loved having that kind of platform and I developed other websites. So I'm very much a fan of the digital media opportunities And the one thing the magazines, since it had been rooted in the 1980s, did not have was as much of a strong digital presence. So I wanted to be able to to turn things into a a better platform for storytelling using audio and video, which which we were just – that's kind of what 2020 is about. What we started with is really – in the first year, it was really about diversifying the storytelling. I really needed to develop networks to connect with people like yourself and a variety of other people who who have their own stories to share. They don't need reporters to interpret them. Our strength is first-person storytelling, which enables people to really use their own voice to share perspectives and points of view about things that we really need to be talking about as a society. Um, to showcase that diversity, we I, one of the the first person I brought on the team was Sarah Whiting, who is a photographer and had been also as long as I had been for Minnesota Women's Press. So we started showcasing cover photography of some of our um, uh, some of our subjects in the magazine. That has also appealed to a lot of newsstand pickup. Um, and it's also been able to showcase – I mean, we didn't actually even have um, – Everybody on our cover for the first couple of years was uh, was somebody from a different ethnicity. Um, than, wonderful, uh, the, wonderful the covers. So yeah, yep, wonderful. So so we've been doing that, um, and then we finally last year was the year we focused on uh, working with a team to create a, a stronger website platform. Um, and then this was the, and we also started doing events. Another thing I wanted to be able to yep. do is have people in conversation together. That's very important. So we started doing that as well. So this was the year for creating to, to go more statewide in personal conversations with with people around the state um, to create. All. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, okay, but um, so. 
you know, that a couple of surprised me that in your 50s you took on a business because you are an idealist, you are trying to world, <laughs> think of the book, and you and you bucking societal trends about single mud was still a challenge mm-hmm. for people. And so, um, you know, so it doesn't surprise me that you did that. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that you have a, a much greater vision. Uh, that I want to just... Uh, tell you what, we're going to have to take a break because um, we're uh, running out of time. But when we come back, I want to talk about that 35-year thing, all right? Mm -hmm. About the fact that this is such a unique uh, publication and presence now and how, um, how critical that is right now for all of us. But that legacy is so important just generally. All right. So we'll come back and we'll talk about that and some other things. All right, Mickey? Sounds good. Okay, listeners, we've been talking to Mickey Morissette, the uh, publisher and owner of Minnesota Women's Press. Um, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at lajkrug at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter. The handle is at elliekrug at on Twitter. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Did you know there's deconstruction funding available now for homeowners and contractors in Hennepin County? If you are embarking on a remodel or teardown this year, consider hiring Better Futures Minnesota's deconstruction crews instead of demolition. By taking a house or building apart by hand instead of destroying it with heavy equipment, the materials can be reused or recycled instead of going into the landfill. It is much more cost-effective and is a carbon-neutral solution. Go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com and look under Business Services to learn more. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. I'm sorry, I, I was seat dancing to um, The Pretenders, and <laughs> I kind of got carried away because Hymn to Her is actually my favorite song. Sorry about that, everyone. Okay, we've been interviewing Mickey Morissette from Minnesota Women's Press. Mickey, I told you before we started, you didn't know what you're going to get with Ellie Krug when you have her interviewing you. <laughs> All right, well, listen, before we did our break, okay, I, I started, I, I, I said I wanted to talk about the fact that Minnesota Women's Press has been publishing for 35 years, the longest feminist-owned, um, feminist-oriented uh, magazine in the country. That is, I think, something, first of all, not most people know, certainly not most Minnesotans. And secondly, talk to me about that legacy. What, I mean, what pressures do you feel, but also what pride do you feel about having 35 years of something that you are now overseeing? Well, I can, I can certainly, I'll start with the pressures, actually. <laughs> the, the current, adver- I mean, 86% of our revenue comes from print advertising. And of course, as everybody knows, newspapers, magazines are always struggling with that. So the pressure right now is to 
you know, keep building on that legacy. But one of the best things is after COVID struck, um, within a week, I was on a Zoom call with the previous, with the original founders and with the previous owners to talk about the fact that they too had had downturns. I mean, the beginning of the magazine, it was tough. Some people were not sure that there was a reason to have a women-focused uh, publication, right. um, that there was nothing really to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So right. That, but, so that, that was a long ramp up. But, that's, the, but there would be people in 2020 saying that very same thing, right? I mean, it's yeah. a, it's a, but go on, go on. I'm interrupting you. Yeah, well, no, and then, you know, in 2008, 2009, the magazine also hit the recession time, and so they figured out, they moved it from a bi-weekly newspaper that it started as to a monthly magazine, which really enabled it to very, very smartly um, navigate when a lot of newspapers and a lot of magazines folded. I mean, Ms. Magazine's been free publication. It's distributed at about 500 um, sites in the Twin Cities. There's subscribers who also get it around the state, especially through libraries and co-ops and things. Um, but it is a free publication because we believe in the, you know, that all access to the content and the story sharing should be accessible to everyone. Um, but Mickey, also- Mickey, can I interrupt you how many readers do you think sure. you have a month versus uh, print um, print as well as digital print uh, we're basically i think right now we've we're figuring cuz the distribution sites we don't always know who's picking it up and who's not although we have some numbers but we're figuring it's about 60,000 in print okay. and then in uh, digital readership which is the number i'm trying to spike now that we're launching a better digital platform, uh, we pr- figure we've got about thirty thousand. Okay, um, that's well, that that's a is, lot of people. That's, that's nearly that's nearly a hundred thousand yeah. every month that are reading this very very important feminist oriented magazine. We also need to make sure that when we use the word feminist. It's a very broad umbrella. I mean, yes, <laughs> I'd say that's one of the challenges too. <clears throat> is that there's different generational. Definitely, you know, the different generations have have different views of what it means to be feminist. So we like to say feminisms. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, all right. So I interrupted you. What are what? So you've got challenges right now because you don't have businesses open where the print um, yeah. uh, version of the magazine is yeah. available. You've got po- right. you've got uh, advertisers who are like, hey, we don't even know if we can keep our doors open, let right. alone advertising. So what are you doing right now to save the magazine? And, and by the way, I know you're going to do it. I mean, I don't have any <laughs> doubt about the fact that this Minnesota Women's Press is going to survive because of you. Um, what, what else are you doing? And, and how can our listeners right now help you? That is what's yeah. very important. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that we would love to see is uh, is increasing traffic on womenspress.com. We know that the readers are definitely out there for the content, um, but we also know that awareness of, uh, for one, the website is uh, relaunched in September. So with a, it has a whole new look and feel to it. So a lot of people aren't really even aware of that. They can read the full publication online in our digital editions. Um, and it really, the, the stronger our website traffic is, um, the more things we're going to be able to do both with future grants around certain single topic areas like the ecosystem. Um, We have new content 
uh, the digital content sponsors that are enabling us to do more, as you know, in LGBTQ content and, and education. So we both but to do that, you know, it is very much an ecosystem. We need to show the traffic so that the sponsors come come on board. Um, and so very much, very helpful just to visit womenspress.com and see. We just launched our first digital-only magazine. The May issue on music and movement is up. And it includes, you know, songs from a lot of the f- featured local artists, um, most of whom I had never heard of. It's amazing. <laughs> I had my assistant editor who is a bit younger than I, do almost all of the um, scoping out of who the artists were that we featured this month. Oh, that's great. That's great. Have you you talked to The Current about that and maybe do a little bit of intersectionality? They're actually the one, Andrea Swenson, who does the local show on The Current. She's one of the writers in this issue. Ah, that's great. She wrote about the book. Yeah, and our June issue is also going to be fantastic, Breaking the Binary. Um, we're also then doing something on climate in July. So I'm always, it's thematic, so it's challenging because you've got a whole different set of writers um, submitting every single month on different topics. Um, so it's just constantly churning, but um, but that's also, you know, kind of what I love about it and what the readers love about it. So right. the other thing that people can do to help, we currently have a reader survey that we're um, that we're promoting that is open because we are planning for some very new ways to direct our content in the coming year. And for that, we really want to know what readers are most interested in. Um, There's a whole set of questions related to that. That also tracks back to being able to tell our advertisers who our readers are. We know they love listening to the radio. We know they love books. We know they're very social justice oriented. They love theater. Um, So, this reader survey, come, we do it every two years. It's incredibly important because I do have some bigger plans for the coming year. And for that, I really need to know kind of where our base is um, right now. Where, so. where and where can uh, uh, listeners find the survey? We have a promo on, on our womenspress.com. We also have our Facebook page, which it shows up on. We promote it there. Um, it's a survey monkey um, thing, and but we have it definitely um, visible from womenspress.com. Okay, so, so if listeners want to support the, the magazine, they can go take the survey, um, which will help you decide and, and direct um, energies for the future. Is there also yeah. some, are you, do you have a subscriber kind of mechanism yeah. coming in place here? And you want to please we talk do. about we, that. Yeah, we do have, you know, we do have a couple hundred subscribers already around the state. You know, even though our publication is free, a lot of women do support us by subscribing, even though they don't need to. And others who just don't, aren't close to our 500 distribution sites, especially outside the um, Twin Cities area. So we do have subscribers, and there is a subscribe slash donate page available on the website. Um, and that it, we've had, we have very loyal readers um, and advertisers who have been with us for three decades. Um, I'm also finding, you know, them on the reader survey. They're they're the first ones on there, and so <laughs> yeah, the mission of the magazine survives. And that's why I think they've been able to weather as many cycles as they have, and that's why it will be able to to survive what we're in right now. Even though, yeah, advertising is not strong, but again, that ecosystem is based on the fact that we support 
local small businesses. Um, And that's, you know, and, and, and that's what we're here to do when, when there more of them are able to open their doors again. All right. Well, so Mickey, again, I have no doubt that the magazine is going to weather everything. And with your great leadership now, here's the question for you. What made you an idealist? Because long before Mm -hmm. Minnesota women's press came along, you were out uh, trying to make the world a a better place. So how, (laughs) how did you become such an idealist? I can, I, I can point to three specific things that I've been thinking about is when I was quite young, my parents um, took in a couple members of a traveling gospel group from Chicago. Into They were traveling through our small town. I grew up in Prior Lake. And um, my one of the sets of neighbors was just livid because these were black men that we were letting sleep in our home. And I was about eight years old. I could not understand. I, you know, I know, I knew these Mm -hmm. neighbors as normal people. (laughs) I could not understand the psychology of that level of intolerance. And it, it kind of planted a little seed to kind of try to figure out how to understand why some people think the way that they do, how their perspectives are so weird. I mean, it didn't, I didn't go deep into it at the time, but I know that planted a seed that there are things I don't understand about, about how the mind works and why people have bias. And, and so that became an interest in, of inquiry for me, I guess, how people, what makes people tick and how can you adjust that and help mm-hmm. sort of evolve is where I've grown every the years. I also, my very first person I ever interviewed, my mother had gone back to school when I was in middle school and she was taking a, a humanities class from a Holocaust survivor. We were studying the Holocaust at school. She set up a time for me to be able to talk to him, and I asked him questions. He was very, you know, about personal story sharing and how powerful that is. And for me in middle school, having somebody trust me with their story was huge. Um, And I knew the the power of story there, at, at a pretty young age and how impactful that can be to experience things and from other people's eyes to whatever extent you can. Um, and then shortly after that, we were also learning about the evils of smoking. And so I wrote a letter to my dad, who was a smoker at the time, and um, about why he should quit. And um, I, I put a lot of thought into the letter, used my words carefully, told him my story, and he quit cold turkey. <laughs> and that really also infused me. My my dad died last month, and so I've been oh. thinking a lot about the influence he's had on my life and my writing. Um, I started off as a sports writer, which is another whole story. <laughs> but but the power the power of words, the power of story, and trying to bridge the gaps of tolerance tolerance between people is really what what I'd like my writing to be all about and what the magazine is for. Well, I mean, you just warmed my, you just spiked my idealistic heart with everything that you just said, and it is <laughs> so incredibly true. We break down barriers as we get to know other people. We do. Yeah. We just yeah. have to get past the fear of other that keeps us from attempting to break down those barriers. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Mickey, we've run out of time. Um, I just want to tell you, it's been an honor to have you on the show. And 
you know I will do whatever I can personally to help with the magazine. Um, and, and I just want to thank you for uh, your voice and your hard work and for leading Minnesota Women's Press and keeping it pushed forward, even in the midst of our pandemic. Okay? Thank you very much, Ellie. And, you know, I sought you out as a contributor to Minnesota Women's Press because of the work and storytelling you do. And it's, it's invaluable. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. All right, listeners. Well, uh, that wraps up my interview with Mickey Morissette from Minnesota Women's Press. Go and visit the website, womenspress.com. Take the survey, become a subscriber, support the magazine, and do whatever you can to spread the word about what a wonderful 35-year-old publication. Okay, when we come back from our break, I'll do my C block where I'll talk a little bit about my work and about something else, a celebration of a birthday. Thanks. We'll be back in a second. Did you know there's deconstruction funding available now for homeowners and contractors in Hennepin County? If you are embarking on a remodel or teardown this year, consider hiring Better Futures Minnesota's deconstruction crews instead of demolition. By taking a house or building apart by hand instead of destroying it with heavy equipment, the materials can be reused or recycled instead of going into the landfill. It is much more cost-effective and is a carbon-neutral solution. Go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com and look under Business Services to learn more. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we are back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Hey, Mickey Morissette, Minnesota Women's Press. Okay, yes, I'm a bit biased. I do write for them. Um, I will actually have a piece coming out in the binary, um, uh, beyond the binary issue of the magazine, which you'll be able to find online. Uh, So, hey, look for that. But most importantly, look for the magazine. Support the magazine, please. Um, Go take that survey that Mickey talked about. Um, and tell others about it, particularly other women. But I men, you know, we've got a lot of allies that are men that support women. <laughs> Most men do in one way or another. Okay, well, all right. We're in my C block where I talk about me being an idealist. I've got two things for you. First, um, last week I launched my inaugural online training with a brand new subject, a brand new topic called uh, the name of the training. New training is, quote, overcoming othering colon, a radical, radical inclusion and authenticity, unquote. I did that. I launched my brand new training online from my kitchen dining room area. I had to learn Zoom. I had to learn a bunch of other things about how the computer works. I did that and I launched it to 66 people. It was a two and a half hour training. 
Um, and I am here to report to you that not only did I live, <laughs> okay, but that the people really who are who are online, who are listening, who are training, the vast majority of people, they filled out an evaluation that I sent them afterwards, had to create the evaluation and then send it off. The vast majority of them liked the training a great deal. And so, um, you know, the big question about all of this was whether my energy – um, that is often in front of audiences because I'm moving around. I don't use PowerPoints. I don't use a, I don't use a podium. Um, I, need a, I, I prefer a lapel mic so I can use my hands. I go up to people and I talk to them and I touch them on the shoulder and I say, hey, do you want to play with me? Because we're going to demonstrate something to the audience about how to be more inclusive to other humans and all that stuff. The question was, would any of that energy translate to the screen? Okay, because, of course, it's a screen, you know, or would it be kind of flat and, you know, Ellie Krug then boring? Ooh, I can't even imagine Ellie Krug boring. But, um, uh, and that was not ego, just saying that to you. It's just like, I, I don't like boring and I'm going to do my best not to be boring. And hopefully you're listening to the show every week because it's not boring. Um, however, you know, uh, the question was, Will it be boring? Can it translate to the screen, my energy? And you know what? I'm here to report. I think it did. Um, uh, there was some unexpected positives. Uh, one was that it was easier to do than what I expected, in part because this is a brand new training. I had a series of notes um, that otherwise I would be holding and looking down at in the middle of as I was standing in front of audiences and maybe having to slow down. Uh, the great thing is I could have the notes off to the side. I could be making points and I could be back looking at the notes and it's like it would not – it would just all flowed so easily. So that turned out to be be very um, simple and, and much easier than what I expected. And then, yes, my energy did translate, okay? As I said, the evaluations came back very positive. Um, someone wrote that, you know, Ellie, you are a natural in front of the camera. I had many aha moments. Um, you made me cry almost 30 times. Okay. <laughs> um, hopefully not like really cry. All right. I mean, it was like touching people. I mean, because the training involved a number of different videos, and then I used my voice as a way of teaching as a tool, and then I sometimes slow down to make point. So anyway, um, so I'm pivoting the whole business to online from being in front of humans because I do not believe I'm going to be standing in front of audiences anytime soon. If you have an interest, I'm going to be doing, it's not a training, it's a community conversation. It's titled, We're All In This Together. It's going to be on tomorrow, May 5th at four o'clock um, for one hour. And if you want to find out about that, you can go Google Eventbrite. We're All In This Together. Ellie Krug, Eventbrite, and the tickets will come up. They're free. Um, I asked for a donation to support a couple of uh, LGBTQ nonprofits, but otherwise, um, you don't have, you donate one buck if you want. I don't care. You could not donate and still be involved. Okay. Now I want to, though, talk about something else. Something that a stranger did 30 years ago. I don't know her name. But I have to believe uh, that she was in part idealistic, and I certainly know that she was altruistic. Some of you know that I'm an adoptive parent. I have two daughters who were born in Korea. That means that there were two women who had to make very difficult decisions about where to give 
about where or how to give their daughters a chance at a better life than what they could, those women could offer. My daughters are not biological sisters. So there are two different moms that placed two different children for adoption in Korea. And I would say that the decision to place a child for adoption is one of the most selfless decisions that a human could make. And it is both altruistic and idealistic. I'm telling you about this because yesterday my oldest daughter had her 30th birthday. I still remember when my daughter came home. At that point, she was five months old, and at that point, we were, I was living in Iowa. I identified as a man at the time. I was married to my high school sweetheart. We had to go. We went to the Des Moines airport to pick up my daughter. It's a long story. But yesterday, on my daughter's 30th birthday, I thought about my daughter and how incredible she is because she's had a lot of challenges in her life, and she has overcome them with grace and dignity, and in such a way, she is a magnificent a magnificent, loving, smart human. But I also found myself thinking of the anonymous woman in Korea, who I am sure was also marking yesterday as well. And I did my best to send her vibes, thanking her for the gift of my daughter, Please know that my daughter, this, this human that you allowed to survive and thrive, please know, anonymous woman, that she has turned into a rock star. And yesterday, I said thank, to, thank you to that anonymous woman many times. All right, our show is over. All right, a big thanks to our sponsors, Branding Electrolysis, and to Better Futures Minnesota. A huge thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett is working under battlefield conditions, and Brett, you are doing great. And to my listeners, thank you for tuning in every week. Thank you for supporting AM950. Please support this station in every possible way that you can. We need to go forward as well, just like Minnesota Women's Press. And thank you for putting up with me because every once in a while I throw you a curveball and you hear the crying in my voice. All right, take care. I'll be back with you next week. Stay healthy and be good. <laughs>